know uh, Craig Dale already, he is head of policy at the, think the Commonweal Think Tank. And yeah, we were delighted to interview him about um, the just, his, his thinking on a just transition. So Great. Periods. We'll play. We'll play that now. Commonweal are a, a, a think, a think and do tank, aren't they? I know Craig told me off for not saying that last time, so I thought I'd drop it in. Okay, enjoy the enjoy the video, and at the end, we'll hopefully have Tim on, and we can chat a little bit more about the um, Scottish Reserve Bank. But enjoy the video. Good afternoon, Dr. Craig DL, and welcome to Scottonomics. Um, I wanted to ask you about your reflections on COP26, which has just finished. Would you like mm. to tell us what your thoughts are? Well, tell the two worlds of that, that, uh, that uh, uh, conference. Outside the conference, I think there was a lot of energy, a lot of uh, uh, very constructive protest and, and activism going on. Um, thankfully, almost entirely peaceful. I think you can count the, the uh, number of disturbances as uh, negligible, um, but very enthusiastic and very necessary. People people are needed to keep up that pressure. Um, the actual COP agreement itself, I think it's fair to call it a failure. Um, the, the, the estimates are that if all of the promises that were made at COP are kept, and implemented on time in full, then the world is still heading towards 2.4 degrees worth of temperature rise, which is catastrophic. So until we get a COP that says that, that comes down, you know, below two, even better below 1.5, then COP continues to be a failure. There's, I've said this several times, there's a reason that we're talking about COP26 and not the 26th anniversary of the successful implementation of COP1. These kind of multinational projects, are, uh, processes, and negotiations—they're they're just simply too vulnerable to, um, to to being compromised to the point of meaninglessness or being derailed by special interests. And we saw both of those things happen at COP this year. Yeah, I guess I would say that then it's uh, incumbent on us all to keep pushing. And um, I, I'll just plug the campaign for the Pay to Pollute campaign. We have a court date on the 8th of December. So if people want to get involved in that, if they want to come down to the rally, if that's possible. But I think we have to just keep continuing. I mean, I would say that I think the COP26 has re-energised, I think, the environmental movement in Scotland, for sure, possibly across the whole of Britain. But I, um, yeah, hopefully more will come from next mm. year as well. One of the things that we've been talking about at Commonweal lately is is the need for, I mean, yes, multi multinational action, um, but trying to wait until the entire world is ready to move at the same pace as the slowest mover. That kind of multilateral action is working about as well for the climate as it has for nuclear weapons. So maybe we start needing to learn start need, need to learn a lesson from that campaign where what has happened is you started to see coalitions of the willing, groups of countries that were able to come together and actually agree what, what they could and needed to do and start to do it amongst themselves. Among the nuclear weapons uh, campaign, that led to ultimately to the Treaty of, uh, uh, um, on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Now, no nuclear weapon state has yet signed it. It hasn't let, led to the decommissioning of a weapon yet. 
But the fact that that has now happened, you now have this coalition of the willing against nuclear weapons. The idea now is they can start building pressure on the other countries to pull in more non, uh, non-weapon states and then pull in the weapon states as, as well and, and, uh, and, and lead to disarmament that way. So from the climate perspective, maybe that's where countries that can and want to move faster start doing it, start building better relationships amongst each other, start building their own Green New Deals, sharing skills and knowledge and mistakes and everything that goes along with that, start building trade deals, start sharing the materials that come out of the Green New Deals. Then eventually, once you've got these trading blocks of this coalition of the, 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 the willing and climate, maybe they start exerting pressure via you know, sanctions and tariffs on the countries that are still moving too slowly. Yeah, we have seen some alignment with the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance. So that's something that looks really positive as well. Precisely. And yeah, I see the First Minister is um, talking about how she can be a member of that as well. Um, so hopefully Scotland will become a member. I, I certainly hope to see that happen. Well, I think it's instructive that Wales signed up immediately as a core member and said, we want to do this, we want to be to, to be part of the folk leading the way and be a, an example to others. Whereas in Scotland, it's much more of a, of a view from the, the Scottish government of, well, it will cause a bad headline if we don't somehow join in some capacity, but it's almost like what's the absolute minimum we can get away with? The, the, the Scottish government's looking at trying to eventually at some point join the most outer orbit of this Beyond, uh, beyond Gas Alliance. So two different two different worldviews going on within those two devolved nations. I think Scotland could, do, could be doing a lot better there. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see that. But then, to be frank, Wales doesn't really have an oil industry. So it's kind of an easy move for We Wales. won't either in a couple of decades. Yeah. This is the point of the Green New Deal. <laughs> we need to be looking to, at that transition and we need to be leading the way. So to start with, Craig, would you like to give us your kind of definition or understanding of what actually is a just transition? Yeah, so the idea of the just transition is... It's, it's quite a sensitive one, especially in Scotland in recent Scottish history, where you, we have seen very substantial sectoral shifts in the Scottish, Scottish economy, such as the decline of coal, the decline of heavy manufacturing. And when they happened, essentially the workers involved were not part of that transition. They were just abandoned. They were fired. They lost their jobs. Entire communities lost the central employer the keystone employer of that community and nothing went in to replace it or where there were efforts to put something in to replace it, the the, the mismatch of skills was so huge that it just wasn't successful. You know, literally trying to get coal miners to become computer programmers with inadequate training um, or, or even in some cases just asking them if that's the transition they wanted to make. So the just, the just transition is the concept that, yes, we understand that the last barrel of oil will come out of the ground at some point. What happens to those oil workers? What happens to all the other workers that are working in in those sectors that will similarly become obsolete as a result of our transition to uh, a Green New Deal? I I spoke to a couple of um, SNP MSPs over the summer and I mentioned the climate crisis and both the MPs that I spoke to said, but we have to be careful. 
And that was that was followed by, and that's why a just transition is so important. Now, it's very difficult to argue against that, but I just wondered, you know, the sceptic in me, I wonder, is the phrase just transition simply kind of predatorial denial on behalf of oil and gas and petrochemicals in Scotland? Is it a way just to slow things down rather than have any significant and substantial change? If it's done badly, it will. I think the big difference that we're seeing with this transition uh, compared to, for example, the transition from coal is we can see what sectors will replace it. And we can already see that unlike those previous transitions, there is a good skill match already. So offshore oil workers, a very large number of them, um, about 80%, according to Friends of the Earth Scotland, have skills that transfer easily into offshore wind, offshore renewables. So if it's done properly, there should all there should be a, a, a clear pathway for people to, to, to move into those jobs. Um, further research by Friends of the Earth Scotland has, has shown that there's actually a great desire amongst a lot of offshore workers to make that transition. But what they don't see at the moment are the job opportunities to move to or the training opportunities to, to to fill those gaps, those skill gaps where they do exist. And that's really what we need to see in, in, in the just transition. It's not, not simply saying, well, we need to be careful, so let's not do anything quite yet. It's right, we need to be careful. What, are, what do we actually need to do to facilitate that just transition? And a lot of it is going to be... Yeah, a lot of it is going to be some of those those skill matching, but some of it is going to be direct investment to build up the demand for 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 people currently in the oil service. You're building those jobs in the renewable sectors to 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 help people make that jump. And looking back to the last um, transition that wasn't a just transition when we're talking about let, let's look at coal and um, we'll go as far back as kind of heavy manufacturing but but looking at the transition from coal industry that happened in Scotland what did we do wrong and what lessons do you think that the government has learned to make sure that that transition is actually just and we do think about the people and communities and not just the businesses who are there I mean the lesson that especially the UK government learned from that is don't give the unions enough power to co- to, to allow them to cause strikes and riots. Um, and, and along with the decommissioning of coal, there was a decommissioning of bargaining power, the decommissioning of a lot of the, the, the workers' rights that came with that, um, which made it politically harder to to put workers on the, on, on the scrap heap like that. Uh, a lot of workers don't have that that kind of security anymore. Uh, which makes the, the the risk of getting the just transition wrong, you know, a lot a lot greater. Um, it would be a lot easier for the, the the that dystopian scenario to happen again. The market played a much bigger part in the transition in the in the eighties and the early nineties. The idea was that the private sector would, of course, come in and take these resources and retrain them and use them again. Now, it's pretty fair to say that that didn't work as planned. How yeah. can we make sure that doesn't happen again? Well, the, the, that previous transition came with um, not just asking the market to, to do it, but act- actively giving the sector to the market. That came along with a big wave of privatization. Um, we're arguing that the the new tra- just transition should go in the other way, go in the other direction. We should be trying to nationalise a lot of these energy assets, um, and 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 bring them into public ownership, or at the very least, worker ownership, 
uh, give workers a stake in what's happening with these uh, with these assets, uh, and and that might be a good way of securing the uh, securing the skills and securing that transition. But it certainly helps secure the assets themselves and the, the the revenue that comes from them to allow that to be recirculated into the next wave of of transition as we use the the early movers to essentially bootstrap the entire green new deal. What do we do? What do we say to the companies who who were involved and who have made a huge amount of profit from the damage that we've been doing to the climate? And I want you know I want to make that clear that there's a just transition because it's not like we have just decided or just noticed that things are going badly with the climate. We've known this, and this has been happening for decades. So when we look at this transition, this this just transition, can we look back at these companies and say you now need to start paying back? some of that profit that you've earned in terms of decommissioning or, or or cleaning up environments do you think there's any potential that we can do that with the companies or are we starting from scratch this is definitely a conversation that could could start coming out of things like future cops uh, there's been a lot of focus increasing focus on the historic role that richer countries the global north has has had um on um, on the climate emergency, this is our problem that we've caused, uh, and it's it's the the global south, the poorer countries of the world that are going to be disproportionately paying for it. Um, but within that, within the countries that have been disproportionately responsible for that, yeah, yeah, there are companies who have been disproportionately responsible for that, and some of those companies have been themselves multinational. So. A particular multinational oil company, if it's drilling in Scotland or if it's drilling in Nigeria or wherever, you know, it's still contributing to that global that global problem. Um, does that mean that they should be part of the disproportionately part of the solution going forward? So, paying more in in the form of taxes and duties and levies to 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 pay for these transitions. Absolutely, certainly. Should it be part of the historical contribution? That's a harder question. I think it's one that should be very thoroughly discussed, though. Previously, when when you look at um, the private sector, when it moves out of an area, it does just up and leave. Yeah. You know, and and that's really, I think, we have to be looking at if we're talking about a just transition, which may be you know ten years away. We have to say to companies now that you're going to have to think about how you leave and not just this kind of slamming the door and, and leaving it behind and trying to find somewhere, you know, like Shell has done recently, trying to file a government that's that's willing to tax you less or um, make sure that they can um, support your business better than the one that you've just left. But how do we make sure that there, there is some kind of framework in place to keep companies involved in this transition so they don't just completely disappear from the communities that they've, they've earned their revenue from? Yeah, I mean, this has been a problem with various uh, en um, energy companies in the past, coal, gas, um, uh, um, and oil. Um, you often had companies come in and say, right, we're going to mine this area, and then we'll we'll, we'll grass over the, the, the mine and leave it better than new. And some companies did, but a lot of companies didn't. Um, or the bonds that they put up. Um, to pay for the, the the reconstruction efforts after they went were insufficient. Um, you've also seen one of the things that actually did come out of COP uh, was Joe Biden saying that he wanted to see a thirty thirty percent reduction in methane emissions. Now, methane is a uh, is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas. It's some eighty four times as powerful as CO two. So, one kilo of of methane contributes to eighty four times 
the same warming as 84 kilos of, of, of CO2. Um, and a lot of this methane comes, uh, is called fugitive emission. So it's leaking from pipes, it's leaking from uh, oil and gas wells that have been capped and abandoned. And some of these capped and abandoned wells, they literally have been abandoned. They are rusting, they're, they're, they're breaking down. The, the company that, that, that capped them sometimes doesn't exist anymore because it's been merged and demerged and broken apart and thrown into a uh, hundred different directions. It's difficult to find out who owns that, that cap now, never mind who's res responsible for it. Very difficult to, tr to, to, to then sort out how you stop those fugitive emissions. Um, and a lot of that is political failure. The companies themselves will, will always turn around and say, we did everything legally, which is a way of saying the law wasn't strict enough. So while, yes, uh, I mentioned, yeah, we, had that, we have to have that discussion about country responsibility. We have to have that discussion about company responsibility. They're symbiotic and parasitic in all sorts of tangled ways mm -hmm. as well. So um, the, the, the politicians have to be setting the standards for the companies to follow. They also then need to be regulating and enforcing the regulations to make sure the companies aren't cheating. Well, well, you've brought two strands together there, and I think this is what it's going to take a big leap in understanding for um, the, the the general public to understand that a just transition isn't just about how the, how do how does the UK or how does Scotland move to a greener economy. It also has to include a role of how we do this transition when it's fair in terms of social justice yeah. and climate justice to the rest of the planet. And I think that's quite interesting because at no point during the, uh, seven, uh, the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when we were transitioning from heavy industry and coal, did we ever have that thing to think about? We were just thinking, how do we have as well-paid jobs? But would you just like to expand briefly on how this just transition for Scotland moving to a more green economy has to play out on a global scale in terms of social justice and climate justice? Yeah, well, for a start, Scotland is one of those rich countries that is disproportionately part of the problem. Uh, you know, something like 90% of historic emissions come from the top 10% of, 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 of countries, and we are in that. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's our responsibility not to stop causing damage as quickly and uh, as possible. It's also, we've started to see this, this phrase of net zero come out. Scotland will be net zero by 2045. The UK will be net zero by 2050. It's increasingly clear that that's not sufficient. Because net zero by 2045 means for the next 24 years, we will continue to do damage to the planet and then we will stop doing damage to the planet. We have made no commitment to helping to repair the planet going forward. These countries, us, who have, who have been making the, the, the historic problem, have to be part of becoming carbon negative, have to be part of actively repairing damage and actively preventing future damage. Um, and we did start to see that a little bit of that come out in COP, the, the, the loss and damage mechanisms whereby rich countries would, would, would put together some kind of fund to, to, to help poorer countries either build up defences against climate change or to repair damage when a, a climate, climate change induced hurricane or flood or whatever just you know, causes damage, we would, we would help to repair that. The agreements at COP were they were tentative, they were they were hesitant, and they were almost certainly too small. Um, 
I don't know if that is, was lack of political will or lack of understanding of the magnitude of the disaster that, that, that can unfold. You, you, you can look at, look at the damage that can be caused by any single hurricane or, for example, the floods in Germany over the summer. How many, how many millions or billions of euros do, does it take to reconstruct that? If the, if the, if the loss and damage mechanism is, is too small, then it could get overwhelmed by possibly even any single event. So, so we need to be, we need to, we, we need to stop being part of the problem as quickly as possible, but we can't stop there. We can't, we can't just say net zero is enough. We have to be part of the solution as well. With that understanding of a just transition being much more important with a global aspect, do you want to kind of talk us through what do you think a Scottish economy looks like? Oh, let's go a bit further than ten years. Ten years, ten years will be will be knee deep in in building the Green New Deal. Um, let's go out to twenty forty five. Let's see what the Green New Deal looks like when it's actually finished. Um, one of the things that folk in, uh, in, in climate discussions often talk about, especially when they're talking about what the effect will be on the lay person is, what do you have to sacrifice um, for, for climate change? Well, for one, I'd love to sacrifice 80 to 90% of my heating bill because someone's come in and insulated my house properly. That's one of the big differences, by the way, between a, a, a net zero plan and a Green New Deal plan. A net zero plan tell, tells me, the house owner, that I need to replace my oil boiler with an air source heat pump. And if I can afford it, maybe insulate my, my loft a little bit or two. A Green New Deal plan comes in and does a deep retrofit of my house to make sure that it's, it, it, it is as energy efficient as possible. And that the heat is delivered to my house, possibly through a district heating system, which is much more efficient than the heat pump I could buy on my own. So my heating becomes 80 to 90% cheaper than it currently is. Um, I don't, I'm probably not buying a lot of useless stuff anymore. Um, and that goes all the way to things like tools. All the tools that I need for my DIY or for my garden, I go, go to my local resource library and borrow them. Possibly borrow a lot of my clothes there as well. Uh, especially formal wear, but all used already. Most men in Scotland are already used to hiring kilts. We could expand that out a lot more. Parents with kids would, uh, I, I know for a fact, would love to be able to borrow baby clothes rather than buy them and have to have to dispose of them within days, if not weeks. Um, we have a much more sharing economy, much more lending and borrowing economy, much more repair and uh, reuse economy rather than buy and throw away. That probably, from a, from a country perspective, that probably means that we're not paying, less not paying attention to, we're not trading as much, we're not having to import so much stuff from the rest of the world. Possibly not exporting quite as much stuff either, simply because everybody else is, is going through their Green New Deals as well. So um, it's, yeah, it, it's... An economy, it is an economy, but it is a very different economy from the one we're currently in. It's not as obsessed with consistently growing every year. It will be looking at other metrics such as well-being. And this is something, again, the Scottish government's talked about, but completely misunderstands. The Scottish government has a, an idea that a well-being economy is one that is still growing, that growth is just one that the growth becomes well-being somehow. No, a well-being economy is one that actually looks at, is your life sustainable? Is it um sufficient 
are you happier doing it? Are you uh, less stressed and anxious? Looks at all those other metrics. And if improving all of those metrics result, results in a growing economy, so be it. If it results in a shrinking economy, so be it. Your life, your well-being is increasing, and that's the important thing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you make. I just want to point out to our viewers that um, Commonweal published uh, its own Green New Deal. I think I'm getting that into the picture a little bit better. Um, a Green New Deal plan two years ago called the Common Home Plan. And in the preface of the Common Home Plan, you write that um, people fear that we may be condemned to a future worse than present. And that is something I've come across from listening to people on Radio Scotland. I try and get a sample of the wider uh, Scottish population than the, the one that I generally in, interact with as well. But I think it's an understanding that there will still be public wealth. It, there might not be so much private wealth, but there would be more public wealth. I think that's a really important point. Now, and in that book as well, you under one of the titles, you have resource strain on your list of solutions. And under that heading, you want to price in the externalities of products. Uh, and this is music to my ears. You know, I follow economics uh, quite a lot, as you know. And for example, Phil Lawn uh, in Australia, he's busy working with the Genuine Progress Indicator. And this is something that he's really trying uh, putting into the Genuine Progress Indicator as well. So with that in mind, how do you envisage that unfolding in Scotland in the future? Well, this idea of um, an externality tax, one that, that does price in the harm that a product does to the, to, to the, to the planet, um, be that from a pollution point of view, from a waste point of view, from a social harm point of view, um, we're already used to some parts of these taxes, things like alcohol um, duties and tobacco levies. The, the, one of the purposes of them is to price in the the social and health harms that these products cause. Um, we are starting to see the even groups like the EU starting to dis discuss carbon border taxes, which is uh, the, the, a, an externality tax on, the, car on the, the, the carbon produced by a product that is entering the single market. Now, we are not going for a border tariff that way. We are going for a true externality tax. We would like this to be applied to all products, no matter where they are produced. So even if they are produced in Scotland. However, that because we're also applying our Green New Deal, um, we can control the regulations of our own country and how, how products are manufactured. So we can make them as green as possible. And of course, we have a natural advantage in that we don't have to transport uh, the goods quite as far to get to from one part of Scotland to another part of Scotland. Um, so that should hopefully give domestic producers an advantage over over uh, overseas producers. I think it is essential because the, the idea of an externality tax has to be essential. It's one of the big weaknesses of market capitalism that they try to get rid of as many costs as possible. And one of those is the, the cost of pollution. As long as somebody else is paying for it and not them, they can still book a profit. I frequently have discussions with people even in Scottish circles who are, who are making arguments such as, well, we can't decommission the North Sea quite yet. What we have to do is get more of the oil out of the ground, get the money from it and use that to pay for our Green New Deal. And I'm, I'm saying if you, if you actually applied a, a proper carbon tax to a barrel of oil, it's estimated uh, based on various sources that, that are trying to work, it out, work this out, 
that you'd probably have to apply a carbon tax of somewhere north of 50 pounds a barrel to pay for the environmental damage that that barrel of oil has cost. We're currently not charging that tax. So if we're pulling that oil out of the ground and not paying that tax, what we're saying is our Green New Deal will be paid off the backs of the people suffering suffering of the pollution who just happen to be elsewhere. Yeah, Again, absolutely. we're contributing to the problem, not the solution. Um, so just to summarise a little bit of what we're covering this ja- just transition, then we're looking for an economy that's much more about sharing, a much more circular economy. Yeah. Um, we're also looking at you know, different and different uh, taxation regime in terms of taxing things that are causing real damage, uh, having much more public space rather than private space, having a nice uh, home, which is, which is a lot warmer with lower energy bills. That doesn't seem like much. Now, is there anything else that we're kind of missing out that would take place in this just transition to actually make a big impact to make the economy better and also to have less of an impact in the uh, on the in, uh, climate? Probably the biggest gap at the moment is it always comes down to money. How do you fund this transition? Um, it is quite clear that the transition is self-funding eventually. Um, the 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 especially if you are using um if you are nationalizing things like the energy sector the revenue that comes in from those nationalized industries plus the additional tax from uh from the necessarily high wage jobs that people are moving into um this becomes a virtuous cycle that as soon as you can inject that first bit of capital into the economy to kickstart things you can you can start bootstrapping the rest of it um this is the big problem Scotland has in terms of our limits of devolution. Uh, We can't do everything in the Green New Deal yet. We can do quite a lot, um, but even a lot of the stuff that we can do, we can't keep doing eventually because we hit a problem that Scotland has very limited limited tax powers and very limited borrowing powers. So it's difficult to kickstart things. I mean, we do now have um, things like the the Scottish National Investment Bank. Um, When that was originally when Commonweal was originally writing the blueprint for that, uh, was the, the blueprint came from a joint project between Commonweal and the, the New Economics Foundation. Uh, Laurie McFarlane wrote that for us. Um, one of the things that we, we pointed out in there is when it's set up under the current fiscal rules, it would almost certainly be set up in a way that the Scottish government would be funding it to the tune of a couple of hundred million pounds a year and giving it a up to a couple of billion pounds of worth of capitalization in the end. And that's exactly what happened. But we said, even back then, that a couple of billion pounds isn't going to be enough for the, the, the SNP to fulfill its missions. Um, our Green New Deal plan, we've costed it somewhere in the region of 170 billion pounds spent over 25 years. So the SNP would need to be many times larger to, to be able to be a key, to play a key role in that. And we've been arguing for for uh, changes to the to the way that the UK uh, records things like the SNB and its and 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 its accounting rules. Uh, failing that, Scotland could become independent and change those rules itself. If that happens, then everything becomes a lot easier. Until it happens, we hit a hard barrier. Now, we were saying that a few years ago when we were trying to set up the SNB. It's interesting that just this week, the 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 chair of the SNB itself was making the exact same argument and he's starting to go through the process of trying to lobby for those rules to be changed. Um, but once we free up those capital limits and we can 
then start kickstarting the process and then start bootstrapping the process and getting that virtuous cycle, then that's how we build the Green New Deal. Thinking about the wider economy and not just the oil worker transition and thinking about Scotland as being an independent country when it's not currency restricted. And I'm not fond of talking about countries talking about borrowing. We're talking about a situation where the, the government can create as much currency as it wants. Obviously, currency and real resources are not the same thing. So my concern is about some of the ideas that you have um, in the uh, sorry in our common home is the resource drain that we have experienced in Scotland, and that is the loss of people. And how do we mobilise enough human resources to actually make a lot of these things happen? Well, just on the monetary sovereignty side. Um, we are starting from the position of not being monetary sovereign. We are devolved at the moment, so we do really need to look at that sort of tax and spend model instead. Um, once Scotland becomes independent and monetary sovereign, things do change, but you still need to be thinking about the tax side of things in order to reclaim the money that the government has injected into the system and reclaim it in fair ways. Look for where that wealth starts pooling. It would do us no good if we injected a bunch of capital to build a Green New Deal and it just all ended up into the hands of a couple of landowners um, on the mega estates in Scotland. So we still need to look at the tax side of things to to, to, to rebalance that equation. On the skills, and this is a, a major, major issue. Uh, I wrote a, an article for Commonweal not that long ago um, pointing out that the, the Green New Deal and the Just Transition, it, this is less a problem of building the boots on the ground. It's finding the feet to fill them. Because while a lot of the skills, for example, from the offshore oil sector, transfer very neatly into the renewable offshore wind sector, the offshore wind sector potential is so much larger than the offshore oil sector that we literally run out of people and we can't keep building it. Similarly, we need to retrofit almost two and a half million houses in Scotland between now and 2045 if we want to meet our Green New Deal targets. We don't have enough people able to, to go in and do the surveys to work out what needs to be done and then to go and fit all that insulation. There's a big skill shortage, a big people shortage in the in the DIY and the construction and in the, the, the trades person sectors at the moment. As anyone who's tried to do DIY, uh, or do some modifications to the house over, over over lockdown has found out. If you're importing less and you're making more of your own stuff, again, you need people who are you making need people that to do stuff. It. And you can't even rely on importing. Because if we want to, for example, import a tranche of Norwegian plumbers to come and build our district heating systems, well, those Norwegian plumbers are needed in Norway to build their district heating systems. Everybody in the planet is going to have to build their Green New Deal all at the same time, all in the same timescales. So we're going to have to do a lot of training. Um, this, is the, this is why we've been urgently calling. We, we wrote Common Home Plan in the tail end of 2019. It's now the tail end of 2021. And we haven't really got on with starting it yet. What we were saying then is we need to be thinking about what who we need in three, five, and 15 years' time. Where do we start training them now? The people who will be building the Green New Deal are in school and college right now. So where are the skills and the education getting put in at that side to start pulling people into those sectors when, so that they are there and ready to start building when 
we have the capital and when we have all the other places, uh, all the other bits of that puzzle in place. What are the Scottish government doing at the moment? Um, I know that they've they've got a just transition commission. I think that was I think that released a paper in September. It's got a minister for the just transition who's it's just transition employment and fair work, and they've got a just transition planning framework. So what have what what have you made of that framework and, and what the Scottish government have done so far in this idea of a just transition? Right. So Just Transition Commission. Um, I should say Commonweal is a member of the Just Transition Partnership, which is an advisory group that set up actually before the commission and um, sort of gave informal advice to the commission. Um, so we, we, we had some kind of level of communication into that. Um, that said, I would say the final report that came out of the commission was still talking in relatively high level terms, very similar to COP. They are still talking in terms of what what should we do, what sort of target should we set, what kind of principle should we lay down, rather than how do we do it, what is our roadmap, what are our milestones along the way. Um, for example, one thing I'd love to see the Scottish Government do for uh, is start actually measuring how many jobs were successfully justly transitioned this year, how many are how many are left to go. Are we going to get them all done before 2045? Those kind of concrete numbers and concrete milestones are what we need to see. But we're still talking in very high level terms about, well, should we have a just transition at all? Well, of course we should. Ah, congratulations, well done. <laughs> so yeah, we need, we, we need to get that much more sort of detail-led roadmap. We, do, we need to make sure that the targets are themselves appropriate. It's that difference again between a net zero and a green new deal. A decarbonised heating a heating sector could be right. We will go in and we will change everybody's oil and gas boilers to electric, and we won't bother insulating their house. And what that does is because electricity is currently much more expensive per unit than than gas, is it puts everybody's heating bill up, um, and you push people into fuel poverty. And you also incidentally hand the entire oil and gas heating sector to electric companies. So <laughs> there's the political dimension of that side of things as well, um, which is possibly why some of these 100% renewable electricity companies are, are very heavily invested in, uh, in, in that kind of transition. A Green New Deal sector wouldn't just be looking at carbon, would also be looking at the efficiency of your house can we get this up to passive level uh, energy efficiency standards or as close as possible to it to minimise your heating bill? You've given us quite a broad change in perspective when we look at this just transition and, and the role that the, the Green New Deal plays in that. Uh, plays in that. So, Craig, thanks so much for joining us on Scotonomics. It's been great chatting to you and we'll see you again soon, we hope. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. And there you go. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, it was a good one.